you have a copy of God's Word, if you could turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to continue our study of the book of Genesis uh, this morning, and we come uh, this week to Noah and the flood. This story actually extends from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 9. We will be focusing this morning on chapter 6. We'll pick up another section of it next week. This is perhaps the most famous story in, in the Bible. Uh, even folks that have never heard uh, or don't read the scriptures or maybe don't come to church regularly, um, they're perhaps familiar with this story. It's one of the most popular children's stories uh, out there. It's very common to walk in a church nursery and to see symbols from this story painted in the rooms, to see rainbows and arcs and giraffes as you're walking down the hall. It's also very popular, uh, we sing about this, the Arky Arky song, which I will not sing for you this morning. Um, and those are good things. I mean, those are, it's good for us to learn and instill and drive stories into our hearts uh, through songs and through children's stories. But there's also a danger, I think. Um, there's also a warning for us, and that's that we can so associate this story with children that we miss the seriousness of this message. And the message this morning uh, and this story centers on a very unpopular message. The wrath and judgment of God. If you've been coming in our series, you know since Genesis chapter 3, we've been in a downward spiral. Well, this morning we hit rock bottom. And again, as we've seen in the last few weeks, in the midst of the ruin, there's good news. In the midst of the ruin, there's hope and there's grace. And so again, I hope we see both this morning. I hope we see the ruin and the seriousness of sin, but we also see the hope of the gospel. And so with that in mind... Let's read uh, this story, this familiar story. Genesis 6, start in verse 5 through verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So if you've ever wondered about total depravity, there you go. <laughs> verse 5. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot man out, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Notice the totality here. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it uh, to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I I need your help this morning. I pray that you would come through your spirit and help me as I preach. I pray that you would give those that are listening, either online or in an overflow room, that you would give them receptive hearts, that we would listen and hear you, and that we would see this very hard passage as a gift. And so soften our hearts, show us the goodness of the gospel, but also show us the seriousness of our sin. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is one of those stories, I say, I've said things like this a few times, but it's very easy for us in a story like this to get distracted by all sorts of things and actually miss the main point. For example, it would be easy to get concerned with questions like, is this a global flood? Was this a global flood? Or was this a regional flood? Or how did he build this thing? And uh, get our measuring tape out and it'd be really easy to think how does all the animals fit two of every kind in here not only that what about the food and food for all of the animals those are good questions but if we're careful they distract us from the main point we do not need to be certain about the answers to those questions in order to hear God's message to us Wherever you land on those details, the Bible's very clear. This is a story that is an historical event, and the Bible sees this story as a passage about the judgment of God on the wickedness of humankind. And so this is a hard passage, but it's also a gift to us because it is God's gracious reminder. It's no accident that you're here this morning. God brought you here. And this is a gift, because you see, though the world uh, might not think that judgment is coming, and might laugh at the fact of 
the judgment of God. This passage tells you that the judgment of God is coming. And that your only hope is to find shelter in Jesus. And so as we look at this passage this morning, uh, see this passage. Yes, it's hard, but see it as a gift. Three headings this morning. Let's look at the cause of the judgment of God, the reality of the judgment of God, and lastly, the escape of the judgment of God. So the cause, the reality, and the escape. Let's jump in. Number one, the cause of the judgment of God. Look at verse 11 with me. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So this is a play on Genesis chapter 1. Maybe you picked up on this. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God created the world. He's filling it with good things and with life and with beauty. And he looked at those things and we saw this refrain over and over. He said it was good. Look at verse 12. Now God has looked at the world and saw that it was corrupt. For all flesh have corrupted their way on the earth. Now, instead of filling the earth with life, humankind has filled the world with violence and corruption. God intended the world to be a place of harmony and peace and love and good things. And now, it's full of manipulation and greed. You see, we, violence and corruption, that's broad, but we could get kind of specific when you look at the context of the things that went on before Genesis chapter 6. Now the world is filled with greed and gossip and hate. Genesis chapter 4, we see polygamy come into the picture. And so we could say that part of this corruption and violence was rebellion against God's design for marriage. Part of this corruption and violence is uh, severed relationships and abuse and brutality. And then remember the story of Cain. Murder was happening. Does any of this sound familiar? I'm talking about thousands of years ago, but I could very easily be talking about 2021. What was the cause of this severe judgment from God? Well, mankind was wrecking God's world. God's good world that he had created. And so the question is, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us right now in 2021? Well, I think this story, one thing it teaches us is that we must take sin seriously. It's not a joke. Verse 7, I will blot man out whom I have created, for I am sorry that I made them. So think about this with me. If you have children, I want you to think about your children just for a second and think about your love for your children. Think about how deeply you love them and about the times where you have cuddled them and held them and taken care of them. Now I want you to ask yourself this question. What would they have to do for you to say, I'm sorry that I had them? How evil would they have to become for you to say, I'm going to destroy them? That, we can't even get our minds around that. I mean, that is so unimaginable to us. But remember this passage, God openly declares that his people, his children, 
who are made in His likeness are so corrupt and so defiled that He had to destroy them. One of the takeaways from this narrative of the flood is that God takes sin seriously, that He cannot tolerate evil. And yet so often we say, ah, it's not that bad. It'll get better. Whatever. I really don't care. Sin is serious. And it brings about such anguish. Don't minimize it. Don't neglect it. In order to, I think, for us to take sin seriously, we have to start seeing the depth of our sin. Look at verse 5. The, son, uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the, hearts, uh, of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. Now this doesn't mean that man is possible, that, human, uh, that you're as bad as you could possibly be, but it means that humanity is uh, uh, born with this bent. That we are born with this inclination to move away from God in rebellion from him, and, and rebel against him. I had a friend who was in seminary, and just like you and we do, he had went to the same grocery store. He went to this grocery store in his community uh, every week to buy his groceries. And he, seven out of eight times in the course of his seminary years, three or four years, he got buggy 17 when he went to the grocery. And you all know what this is like. You've had this experience when you've gone to Walmart and you've gotten your cart but someone evidently had run into buggy 17 and damaged it for life. No matter what you tried to do, if the cart was standing still, it starts drifting into the end cap. And you're worried it's going to knock everything over. Or you're pushing it, you know what I'm talking about, and you're wrestling it the entire way through the store because it's wanting to pull to the right. And so, my friend, that was Buggy 17. Someone had damaged Buggy 17, and it was his mission to straighten Buggy 17 out. And he was determined to do it. So much so, he reached a low point. One night, he brought a hammer. And after unloading his groceries in his car, he gets his hammer out and starts hammering, trying to straighten out Buggy 17. Do you think it worked? No, it didn't work. The frame was bent, had structural damage. Your buggy 17. That's what the Bible says. And yes, I know that's hard to hear. But listen, you'll never get Jesus. You'll never understand Jesus. You'll never love Jesus. You'll never understand Christianity and what Jesus came to do until you realize that you're the buggy that always pulls to the right. Until you realize that sin has caused structural damage inside of you. That your frame is bent. And it moves away from God naturally. And all of us need to be straightened out. We need to have our inside, our heart straightened out and realigned with the ways and promises of God. And only Jesus, the Bible says, can do that. You see, what we think is wrong with the world is politics. We think what's wrong is our, it's our children, it's their fault. Or it's our spouse's fault. Or it's social media. 
Or it's the education system. Those are the things that are bent. Those are the problem in the world. The hardest thing for all of us to do is to admit that I am the problem. But here's the point. That's the first step to Christianity. That's the first step to understanding Jesus is to be disturbed by your own sin and realize that your sin deserves the flood. It deserves the wrath and judgment of God. Do you realize that this morning? Until we realize that, we will never understand this story. We'll never understand this story and it'll never make sense to us. Secondly, the reality of God's judgment. Verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Again, I know this is difficult, but this passage is very clear and I need to point this out. This is God's doing. This is not some random storm created by nature. This is God's doing. He's in control and it's very clear in this passage that this is his response to sin and to the violence and corruption in the world. How will he destroy the earth? Verse 17, For behold, I will bring a a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and then just in case we missed it, think about the emphasis, keep reading, everything that is on the earth shall die. Now, if you're not unsettled yet, you're not listening. This doesn't rattle, this should rattle us. Our modern ears have a very difficult time with the wrath and judgment of God. And perhaps you're thinking this morning, this is so offensive. This is why I'm not a Christian, maybe you're saying. Because of God, I like to think of a God of love, not a God of judgment. That's my God. Before you go there, think about this. What kind of God would God be if he overlooked abuse? What kind of God would God be if he looked, overlooked violence and corruption and evil and ugliness? Well, he would not be loving. Because God's goodness and holiness and love for what he has made actually demands justice. I mean, think about it. Let's work this out. For God not to judge means that you ultimately don't matter and this world ultimately doesn't matter. God's judgment actually means that you matter to God and that he loves you and that he cares about you. Think about this. You probably heard this said. What's the opposite of love? The opposite of love is not anger and hatred. The opposite of love is indifference. What moves you to anger? You're moved to anger when something deeply matters to you. And so that's why God's moved. It's because the world and you deeply matter to God. And we see this love and care for God in this passage in his reluctance to judge. And here's what I mean. We normally think about this warning and God sends the warning, I'm going to destroy the earth by flood. And we think Noah just had a long weekend and he built the ark. (laughs) No, it took decades for him to build the ark. What's my point? 
God was giving people time. God was saying, repent, giving people time to turn back to him and to love him and to reestablish the relationship with him. We also see this in verses 6 through 7. God was grieved in his heart. And I think that's important because I think oftentimes we have this image that God is up there wringing his hands and pacing and just waiting to pounce on people. No. God is grieved. He's heartbroken. Over, and it causes him pain, the sin in your life and the sin in the world. He is more grieved about your sin than you are. God loves the world and he loves people so much that he's heartbroken broken over the condition of the earth and over his people. And this teaches us something about godliness. It teaches us about godliness. We often think godliness looks like judging other people or looking down on others and thinking ourselves better than others or looking down on the world. No. Godliness weeps. Godliness weeps with compassion first over the sin in our lives, in your life personally, over the sin in other people's life, and over the world. And what sin has done with the world, wherever you land on the reality of God's judgment, we cannot separate it from God's character and God's love. There's one other thing I want you to see about judgment and the reality of God's judgment. Look at verses 11 through 12. Derek Kidner points this out. This is strong. He's a commentator. He pointed out that the words corrupt and violence give us new insight into the nature of sin and judgment. And here's what he notes. That the Hebrew word for corrupt makes it plain that what God decided to destroy in verse 13 had been virtually self-destroyed already. Now, what does that mean? He's saying that before God destroyed the earth, humanity had already basically destroyed itself in a sense. What does that mean? Well, it means that sin, he's saying, comes with a sort of self-judgment. It comes with self-punishment and deconstruction built into it. So that God's judgment is simply confirming your choices. Let me say that another way. God's judgment comes in the form of giving you what you want. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in judgment, kind of judgment in Romans chapter 1. You remember it says that God gave them over to their desires God finally gave people what they asked for and they thought the whole time, yes, I'm finally going to do what I want and live the way I want. And what did it end up doing to them? Destroying them. And God giving, giving them what they want. And so what does that look like practically? Let me give you two examples. It looks like deadness of heart. It looks like the things that used to bother you no longer bother you. It looks like things that used to be that you said you would never do, uh, they're just not as hard for you to do anymore. 
That it's easy for you to do the things that you said you would never do. It gets easier. And what ends up happening is we end up chalking it up to age and maturity. All the while we're walking down a path of spiritual mediocrity. Friends, that's the flood. It also looks like you thinking that real happiness and that real joy is away from God. It's away from God's authority. And so you say things like, it's my life. And I get to do what I want to do. And so you end up making life all about you. And you tell yourself, yeah, I'll change. Yeah, one day when I get older and have a family or get married, I'll settle down and I'll really get serious with Jesus and I'll follow him. And I used to talk about this with students all the time on the campus. And I would look at the student and I would say, how do you know that? How do you know you'll change and end up following Jesus? And what I meant by that is, you know, when you keep refusing to listen to God's word, eventually over time, you just quit hearing altogether. And your heart becomes hardened. And then you end up in a place that you never thought you would be. The reality of God's judgment. Don't separate it from his character. And also, remember, there's a sense where you can experience it now. Yes, it's coming at the end when Jesus returns, but there is a sense where you can experience it now if you refuse to repent and continue on your own way. Lastly, need some good news yet? It's coming. The escape from God's judgment. Look at verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor translated is the Old Testament word for grace. It's the very first time it shows up in the Bible. And the temptation for us is to see this and to see that verse 9 is, look at verse 9, is the cause of verse 8. In other words, it's tempting for us to see the reason why God gave Noah favor is because Noah was so good. And because Noah was so righteous, well, that fails to take into account the entire passage. Remember the emphatic nature of the passage? I tried to point it out over and over. It says, all flesh. There's no exceptions here. All mankind was to be wiped off the face of the earth. And that means that Noah and his family were included in God's assessment of the human race. And so why did God or why did Noah escape the flood? Grace. What is grace? Well, we think grace is giving you something that you don't earn or deserve. Not exactly. Grace is kindness and love, not just in the absence of earning, but in the face of mistreatment. In the face of failure, and in this case, in the face of corruption and violence. Notice the verse doesn't say Noah earned and won favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. What does it mean to find something? You discover it. Think about walking this afternoon and you walk and you find money. You did nothing. You happened upon it. You stumbled upon it without regards to your work or behavior. And so here's the point. Verse 8 is the cause of verse 9, not vice versa. It's always the gospel order. It's grace, then obedience. 
Salvation is by grace alone. Noah walked with God because he found favor with God. He did not find grace because he walked with God. God's grace produced faith and obedience in him. Look at verses 13 through 21. That all describes Noah's obedience. God instructed him and he did what God said. Righteous here doesn't mean that he was perfect. It just means that he had faith. He believed what God said and he tried to follow God in what he said and be obedient. So what did God say for him to do? Verse 14. He tells Noah to build an ark. Some of you pray for me regularly or when you ask how you can pray for me. And some of you do pray for me and I say just keep my heart soft towards God's word. My number one prayer is that I would just be amazed by God's word. Every single week. Well, God answered that prayer this week. This might not interest you, but this blew me away. Verse 16, or verse 14, the word ark there only is used one other time in Scripture. Remember, the writer of the book of Genesis is Moses. He also wrote the book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 2, remember Moses' mother puts him in a, ark and sends him down the Nile River in order to save him from the Pharaoh and the King James Version actually translates Exodus chapter 2 right it translates it instead of basket that's probably what your version says it is ark do you see the connection just as the ark preserved Noah and his family from watery death so the ark or the basket preserved Moses from death but there's more. Verse 14, the word pitch there. It says the ark was covered inside and outside with pitch. The root word of pitch is to atone for or to cover. Do you see it? Noah built the ark and it was a place of covering, a place of atonement and salvation and protection for Noah and his family from the judgment of God. Centuries later, Jesus would come as a greater Noah. And Jesus would truly be the only righteous man who ever walked the earth. And Jesus wouldn't just walk with God. Jesus was God's one and only son. And Jesus came into the world not to bring salvation through a wooden ark, but through a wooden cross. And on that cross, Jesus would be crushed under the flood waters of the wrath of God for the judgment of our sin, and he would receive the punishment that we deserve so that everyone who trusts in Jesus, who hides themselves in Jesus, and trusts in Jesus by faith, Jesus provides pitch, covering, and atonement and shelter from the storm of God's wrath. We know something about a storm shelter, don't we? <laughs> Living in the south. A couple of weeks ago, what do you do in a storm shelter? You take cover. You hide. Jesus, in a sense, is our storm shelter. And we hide in Jesus and we shelter in Jesus from the coming wrath of the judgment of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to close. Jesus actually talks about Noah 
and the flood. And I'm going to close with Jesus' words and think about how strong these words are that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20 and this 24, and this will be my closing. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And listen to this. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And what Jesus is saying there is they were ignoring the warnings. And then listen to what he says. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. And then he says, this is how it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of Jesus is unknown. And Jesus is saying to all of us, and again, this is why this passage is a gift. Wake up. This is a gift because this means the fact that you're listening to this and Jesus has not returned, that God's still giving you time. He's giving your family members time and your friends time to repent and to find shelter in him. And so will you do that this morning? Whether it's for the hundredth time or the first time, will you come to Jesus and find shelter? Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing for us permanent, we can sh- permanent shelter from the coming judgment and wrath of God. Would you forgive us for our apathy and for our neglect of our sin? Holy Spirit, if there's anyone listening, I pray that, one, you would convict us of our sin and our neglect and the way we minimize it, but that you would also um, make people's hearts alive to the gospel for the very first time. Give them faith and them ears to hear and eyes to see and respond to your free offer of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.